0: Case file number 6.12, Virus Anthropology, observed by Agent Crenshaw. Agent Crenshaw, still working on this Gibson thing. Don't no, Chief, you, you gotta give me more time. Have you even listened to the recordings? It's like an encyclopedia of this hacker stuff. One of them just keeps going on and on about everything that ever went wrong on the internet. No. Nobody knows this kind of crap. He's obviously up to no good. Yeah, the one called Hackalope. No, how is it not illegal? The information is dangerous. And and the other one, the other one, Ymir. He's always going on about everything the CIA and FBI did wrong. All the wiretap stuff, all the crazy projects. How does he know? We already know he's infiltrated NASA, and I am this close to catching him skipping leg day. Now just ask yourself, Chief, what would J. Edgar Hoover do? Chief, all I need is more time. Sooner or later, they're gonna slip up and I will catch them hacking the Gibson.
1: Uh, the accounting subdirector in the Gibson's working really hard. I think we got a hacker.
2: have you ever on like your personal or family system gotten a virus
1: back in the day because i shared a uh, computer with my brothers um, and they were constantly pirating stuff through casa and so we're inevitably some of that pirating would be porn and inevitably some of that would be viruses
2: yeah friend of mine had a roommate he didn't really use the internet very much but his roommate didn't It was the only computer in the place Mm -hmm. so i think i've mentioned some of the some of the uh Blockerware and some of the r- ransomware episodes. Right. Yeah, um, yeah. Using a little bit of Windows keystroke command, um, shortcut foo, and some s- sys internals tools, I was able to clean that stuff up. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. I, re- I remember like back in the like the early days, quote unquote, of viruses where it was just like pop ups just everywhere on your PC, you know, just like everything popping up. And then at one point, it was like the redirection stuff.
2: Yeah, we in fact we talked about some of these stuff, this stuff before. We mm-hmm. talked about my favorite virus, the Slammer worm. Yep. We we did a whole set of episodes about ransomware, and in fact, the very first one of them gets a mention here. <laughs> um, we talked about just what you were talking about, not the crypto ransomware, but what they call blockerware, which is a ransomware type thing that that blocks use of but does not do file encryption that was something we talked about in the uh first ransomware episode I believe. right yeah and like dns redirection uh one of our early episodes was on um it was a, it was about the dns changer uh virus um that oh was- i vaguely remember that yeah yeah um i did th- i did that one that was another early internet virus but today we're actually talking about the viruses that came before the internet
1: like well, malaria uh,
2: yeah yes how do you deal with a problem like malaria uh actually so we're going to end on on a famous virus that happened uh right before what I like to think of as the beginning of the internet as we know it And I've talked about this before this is the night, summer of 95 AOL sent all the 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 disks out and that's when when regular people started getting on the internet rather than just enthusiasts, and when the internet started being more than just Usenet and email. So, 94 is when this thing happened. Mm-hmm. But we start from the beginning. Um, <laughs> Vizini said, whenever, when if something goes wrong, go back to the beginning. So, I'm here back at the beginning. Uh, okay. So, some of the f- first stuff that is considered a virus goes all the way back to 60s mainframes. hmm and this was theorized mostly. And some people actually did some some stuff related to this of what they call rabbits, which would do queue blocking stuff. It would it would fill up the queue, the system queues, with all of your jobs, and essentially reserve capacity ahead of everybody else.
1: Hmm, okay.
2: Once that had been theoretically talked about, people talk. Uh, very soon thereafter, started implement system queuing, fair queuing mechanisms in those systems Mm -hmm. but if you think about it this is one of those first things that encouraged the use of any kind of resource guardrails on systems Mm, right because this is well before anybody had ideas of secure system design stuff where you had a lot of permission stuff where you had resource queuing audit logging all that stuff is in the future the the famed big red book that doesn't fit on any shelf, the NSA Super <laughs> Systems Guide. Mm-hmm. Um, and by the way, in this episode, there are at least a few references to Hackers the movie because they did pull <laughs> at least some of the conceptual stuff out of this kind of history before when they wrote that uh, movie, in uh, which was published in 1995. So like, they talked about rabbits about filling up memory. That was one of the attacks hackers in Hackers the movie. Right. There were some early replication systems that there was a game about, oh, like there was a 20 questions type game called Animals, uh, which somebody turned into a replicator that would replicate itself to every file in a program directory where it was run.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
2: Not malicious, not that big a deal, but the very beginnings. Now, when you read about the first virus, the first virus you'll almost always see, is Creeper by Ben Thomas in 1971.
1: Isn't, I know nothing of Minecraft, (laughs) but isn't the enemy called the Creeper? And is that a direct reference?
2: I didn't see anything like that. I will admit that I did see the Creeper stuff in some of my early Google results before I started like filtering better. (laughs) But I never clicked on any of the Minecraft links and I just don't care about Minecraft. Yeah. I totally see it as a thing that I would have spent a ton of time on as a kid, but I was too old by the time it was a thing for it to be interesting to me. It just it, like it passed the part of my life that I would have been interested in Minecraft, so I know nothing.
1: Yeah, exactly. Quick, quick Google search um, apparently it isn't. It's just because it creeps up on people.
2: Aha! Uh-huh. Well, it would have been really cool if it was. <laughs> yeah. No, I'm not self conscious at all about being an old and an Um <laughs> Uh, anyway, so uh, this was written by Ben Thomas at BBN, our old friends at BBN, who did a lot of the foundational internet work. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we talked about some of the very early email things where the emails were between the two BBN computers, and that was a lot at the time.
1: Yeah, 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 yeah exactly.
2: <laughs> so it ran on the 10x operating system, and it was basically just a proof of concept of self-rep automatically self-replicating code. to move from system to system. It was just proof of concept. It wasn't like a real virus. It didn't do anything malicious. In fact, the only thing it really did, it would print out on the teletype, I'm the creeper, catch me if you can.
1: Oh, I think I've I've seen references before. Sounds familiar.
2: So Ray Tomlinson, who is an Ur-Unix guy, in 1972, took him up on that and wrote the program Reaper. (laughs) and reaper is credited as the first antivirus mm-hmm. um there's a couple of interesting things about it if you think about it one is that it's probably the only antivirus that ever had a confirmed 100% success rate <laughs> 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 cuz there was one virus right yeah, yeah. <laughs> um another thing is there's a concept that was in fact i think that we've we've touched on this in a few earlier episodes but there's a concept that we've kind of lost but shows up in the 70s and 80s a lot more often than i ever expected which is the idea of a beneficial virus something that used virus replication techniques but did something good for the user of the system okay and reaper was one of those was that it, it was a replicating system and it tried to remove creeper where it found it by doing similar self-replication stuff mm-hmm, mm-hmm. the last piece of the legacy of the creeper reaper thing is if you think about it the creeper reaper thing they're in a race with one another um mm, right yeah so one is trying to stop replication one is start trying to do replication and this is in very early systems so out of this came a game called core war which is still played today hmm, okay what it is is you, is you have two human players and they write an assembler program it's an abstract assembler language so it's it's an assembler type language works like assembler but it doesn't replicate any particular system mm-hmm. it's just abstract it a little bit to make it simpler to implement because what they do is they create a, a virtual machine a really tiny virtual machine you know in a world way before vms were a thing <laughs> that has a memory stack and you start the two programs at either end of the memory stack and they run and they can do they can copy themselves they can even spawn other processes and stuff like that and one of them wins over the other one when it can overwrite and stop the operation of the opponent
1: hmm, okay that's cool um
2: and it, so it's it's a standalone system that is isolated so as soon as you set it running it's like setting dogs off on a race you can't do anything once you hit go
1: right, right.
2: you're just seeing what happens because um, the point of this is there's no human interaction it's like how good does the program you wrote deal with the strategy of the program you're against
1: interesting okay
2: and like i said people still play this today um i can't say that i tried to look into who does and what the community is currently like mm-hmm. uh i do know that somebody showed me this and i played around a little bit with it in the late 90s right um, but i yeah i didn't actually write any programs for it i looked at it some and i kind of understood some of the current strategies and i was like no nah, right. I don't. i don't have the shops for this
1: it, it kind of it vaguely reminds me like not to the scale but i remember playing a game with you like uh think like a few months after we met where it was like like robot rally or something like that yeah robo rally robo rally yeah 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 and it's kind of like you know it's it's only four players or something so you're yeah you're only thinking four moves ahead but still kind of you're like hands off just letting it go once it yeah. fires
2: yeah every everybody puts their moves down simultaneously in secret and then you adjudicate them basically simultaneously mm-hmm. yeah
1: yeah it was really fun. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah well i mean uh you played it with my wife and i uh i the first time i played it it was me and another guy on the security team and two guys from the network team We'd oh really <laughs> grab a conference room for lunch and we'd all eat and play robo rally and we even figured out how to save our positions and everything so that we could reset up because um, oh, cool. <laughs> uh, we couldn't even when you have some practice at that, that game mm-hmm. does not go quickly
1: no 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 it's not yeah
2: but it was it was it was real fun um uh, mm-hmm. when we when you have like a handful of people who who have the the kind of brain that that enjoys doing that, it can be a lot of fun. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, so uh, I guess the last piece of the 70s is the book Shockwave Rider. Okay. Uh, which I actually ended up reading at some point in my childhood. Like, I remember the cover when I was in, like, junior high. Mm-hmm. In there, and apparently this was only in the first edition from the book I was reading. I was removed in subsequent editions. It was edited out. I barely remember the, the 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 book, uh just like the highlights, uh, which have nothing to do with viruses. But in the book, they talked about a virus that self-replicated the slow and tedious way. It dialed up another system, copied itself, and then deleted itself on the first system. Mm, okay. And then the premise in the book was that something happened in transmission, that there was some errors in transmission, and the program stopped deleting itself and just started self-replicating.
1: Ah, okay. Um,
2: And this is probably, best of my reading, the origin of the term worm, or at least the term of the worm as it pertains to computer viruses. Mm
1: -hmm.
2: So, like, this is all talking about computers that regular people never touch. Mm -hmm. These are commercial systems before the days of desktop computing right when we get to the 80s we start talking about those personal computer viruses Mm -hmm. and the first one that we see any reference to was actually a research toy it was never publicly released it's called uh the elk cloner and it was for the apple II. Hmm. okay it started propagating by intercepting the catalog command, and then checking to see if the boot sector of the system, of the disk it was it was run from, wasn't in, was infected, and if it wasn't, then it would infect it.
0: Oh, yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm.
2: And then it would capture basically at the kernel level, more or less. These concepts kind of run together a little bit this early on in computing, mm-hmm. but it would intercept the run load catalog commands, and there's like there are a couple of like variations of this but basically those commands and then like it basically ran in memory um it would copy itself to other disks that were in the that that in the system when it was running because i should probably tell the audience this was back in the day when you booted from one floppy and there were no hard drives nobody had hard drives (laughs)
1: like
2: the disk you had was how it ran right um that was true for the apple 2s it was true true for the early um ibm xt computers and even the at com- well the early at computers the 286s by the time we were 386s people had hard drives pretty common right I'm not sure exactly where that to- where that thing changed cuz i remember we had a 286 that had like a 10 meg hard drive or something like that oh geez. 20 megs yeah. um I'm confident it was a 286, and I know it had a hard drive. (laughs) But I'm willing to bet that at least some 286s were sold with no hard drive.
1: Mm -hmm, Right.
2: Anyway, so uh, the other thing it would do, which is a thing that we do see crop-ups from time to time after this, is there would be a counter with a random threshold that when you reach that threshold and and increment of that counter by the number of times you hit one of the intercepted commands, Mm -hmm.
0: uh,
2: it would do a thing and it would do things usually like write a poem out to the screen and stuff like that. Huh.
1: It's funny. Like yeah. uh I, I think I told you my first degree was in multimedia mm-hmm. like graphic design. And so like one of the projects uh we had was a um a like Jeopardy game that we made mm-hmm. um in Flash. And I remember like putting like hidden code behind it where if the user did a certain set of things they would actually like unlock like a bonus screen that would like slide to the right. And it'd be like a bunch of like fanfare and like a bunch of other stuff going on.
2: That's cool. But I'm sorry to say it's not an original idea. <laughs> no, no, no. I don't know if that bursts your bubble or anything, but
1: <laughs> yeah, I think, I think I thought it was really, really cool at the time. Cause I was like, Ooh, this is, this is interesting, but
2: I feel like it might be cool if, if some games did some did stuff like that. Um, well, I mean, I guess you get achievement hidden achievements like that nowadays on consoles and stuff.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a lot of that, like do a certain thing like a thousand times, and it, you know, just keep strapping that. Yeah, I mean, even even games back in the day, like Warcraft One, I think had this. Warcraft Two definitely did. Like when you click on certain NPCs a mm-hmm. bunch of times, like they would explode or they would get very angry at you um, and say something.
2: So, where viruses meet Easter eggs, <laughs> I think there's a salmonella reference in there somewhere, but I just, I don't have the joke, man. <laughs> anyway, so, I'm not sure I read this one quite right, but I but the way that I, I read it, it says that an early version of the Congo game uh, on the Apple II got released with a virus that caused some graphics problems hmm okay I don't know if that was a if it was a bug version or if there was an actual virus or what because they they didn't talk about any replication of the of the the bug condition, but somebody wrote a fix a self-replicating fix for it okay so it was it was it was um an in the wild real example on the Apple II of that whole self-replicating benign slash beneficial feature interesting <laughs> that's
1: funny because i don't know if you'll talk about this later but like nowadays when we buy games to the pc we actually like legitimately allow them to install their viruses on us with like yeah. de, de- novo and drm stuff
2: well so because we're killing this basically we're finishing this episode in 1994 okay, gotcha. uh, we're not go- talking about that stuff because uh i thought covering like the history even the general history of malware and antivirus is important but man i was disappointed in how difficult it was to get any kind of useful detail about when particular evolutions happened like stuff hmm. i learned was true yeah um, even in the in the late 80s the idea of code that could modify itself So that it couldn't be detected as the same like checksum or the same some of the same patterns that was talked about as at least theoretically possible at the time. Right. Um, And I don't know when those things really started to happen. The ability to be what they called uh, a metamorphic code, Mm -hmm. and then like how do you deal with that? And there and I know about some of the strategies that I know have been used, but When were they employed? What kind of order? Because I, um, the stuff that I'm most familiar with is stuff that was is actually pretty recent, right? Um, And so, like, getting a good structured uh uh, timeline of how all of that happened has been more difficult than I expected. So this set of episodes kept growing and growing on me. (laughs) (laughs) As they will, anyway, they'll do that. But I, I'm gonna say that like my crypto war stuff ended up being a total of about five episodes uh if you include the the quantum the quantum cryptography episode. Mm-hmm. So it was about what I was aiming at. This one was supposed to be one maybe two it might end up being four out. And, <laughs> and that's and that's having already done what? five or six episodes on ransomware specifically. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, before I go completely off the rails. The next kind of important virus is probably the pc the first pc virus Mm -hmm. which was called brain okay it was a full-on stealth virus and it infected boot sectors um unlike a lot of these things like the replication happened by copying itself from disc to disc so uh yeah this one was a boot sector virus the next one we'll talk about was was uh the other kind of uh thing that was happening in that Mm mm-hmm It didn't do really do any internal damage to begin with, but it did slow things down. And because it hit itself in marked bad sectors, uh, it essentially disks that had more bad sectors than the five or so kilobytes on the three hundred and sixty kilobyte floppies of the time. Right. If there were too many bad sectors, it was trying to hide in the reserved bad sector space. And if you had too many of those, it would call co- it would start causing some serious performance problems because oh, okay. that's less and less sectors that people can that that the disc can write to. Mm-hmm. And like defragmentation is not as important now, especially on SSDs. Never run a, a defragger on SSDs. <laughs> yeah. He's quite bad. And you don't need to it like it's a completely different technology and does not require defragmentation. Mm-hmm. And any defragmentation program that runs on an SSD should probably be labeled malware. Um, <laughs> anyway, so the more labeled bad sectors that you have, the more the disks, the 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 operating system has to fragment the data, mm-hmm. and it's kind of making the disc work harder. And if you're already having a degenerating disc, because it's got some bad sectors, usually if you have some bad sectors, you're going to get more like that. The media itself is wearing out. Right. It would like cause an acceleration of that. And this is like all old school stuff that nobody ever has to care about anymore. But Mm -hmm. that was basically the, the downside Mm -hmm. of it. It just was a self replicating system that, Didn't really do much but it did self-replicate and it did evade detection which i think is the other really big thing about right yeah it had a message that it it never displayed but was in the binary from the reading i did i don't think it was ever supposed to i think it was just supposed to be hey does this does this work kind of thing
1: Mm, okay
2: a little bit later you got denzuku virus in 1988 which was another brute sector virus which among other things it went and destroyed the brain virus like that was what it did interesting okay yeah i was originally wanted to talk a little bit about antivirus at this time um because this is basically when any anti- commercial antivirus started and it was and it, it was essentially john mcafee a little bit after that was uh the norton antivirus and the dr Sullivan's antivirus and i believe FProt was was one of the very early ones and the thing is they didn't really need at this point to be doing anything crazy mm-hmm. the number of viruses was relatively constrained right yeah um so they weren't trying to do any kind of heuristic analysis or anything they were just recognizing the actual viruses mm-hmm. so this is At the beginning, at the beginning, we were just looking at straight, easily detected patterns and indicators. And that's going to be where we're kind of lead things at the end of this one. But that's the nature of antivirus right now. The John McAfee for all the talking that he did and maybe even said some stuff that was somewhat insightful later on. The original thing he was famous for was... Not a lot different than a glorified grep. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm not saying that we didn't need that. Yeah, Uh, yeah. But let's not go these the percentage portion. So here's another one. And this is like an an example of what I have called the graffiti era Mm in 1988. It was a file virus called Syslock. And the thing that it did was it changed all of the text string Microsoft to Macrosoft. Oh, okay. Your file. like that. That's what it did. Okay. But The thing was that it infected exe and .dot com files, which are also executable file extensions in DAW, in the original DOS. Mm-hmm. They still qualify in Windows. You don't see them very often. But, right. But the important difference is it wasn't a boot sector virus. It was t- attaching itself to uh, executables.
1: Hmm, okay.
2: And in this case, it would search the director, the entire disk that it was executed from, and uh, attach itself to a random EXE or, or COM file. Mm, okay. T. EXE or COM file. Mm. Um, so, right after this, this is this is some stuff that we're talking about from like around 1988. 1989 was the AIDS worm that we talked about before the very first that very first worm where uh to pay your ransomware sorry not worm ransomware um to pay for your ransomware you had to mail money to that pan i think it was a panamanian po box
1: oh yeah yeah Mm -hmm.
2: that was right after the viruses we're talking about like that's how early we're talking about damn okay yeah so we're hard drives but things are happening through shareware things are happening through sneaker net infection disc to disc almost entirely. So the last thing we're going to talk about is the relatively famous Morris worm. We may have made mention of it. I just want to, for the sake of at least completeness, I want to talk about it uh, here. Um, so it's created by Robert Morris in 88. And uh, the worm was supposed to replicate using a few known security vulnerabilities and Mm -hmm. morris wrote it basically to highlight those vulnerabilities okay these were basically weak password type exploiting distributed passwords weak passwords that kind of thing Mm -hmm. but he made a little bit of a coding mistake and it started replicating significantly and actually, <laughs> um, the thing that checked how whether or not it would, had already uh, reported its infection status mm-hmm. didn't work right. So oh, okay. It, so it created essentially a denial of service attack because it would just say, I'm infect- infected, 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 infected. Right. In a way that was not entirely unlike the sl- the uh, slammer worm that I talked about. Mm-hmm. All of this was happening on TCP, but the connections were much slower back then.
1: Yeah, right.
2: So Morris actually got caught for this. Um, and uh, the U.S. Court of Appeals estimated the removal cost of each virus installation in the range of between $200 $253,000 in 1988 money. Jesus. Clifford Stull of the GAO uh, said the the economic impact was between $100,000 and $10 million. It's
1: a large range.
2: Yeah. This is part of the grand tradition of not doing a great job of estimating the cost of how difficult it is to clean things up.
0: Right.
1: Yeah.
2: And going back to one of the ransomware things we were talking about, where in the Atlanta one, where we talked, to, where we were at the uh, the panel with lawyer Liz, how they had already spent 20 million dollars cleaning it up and it was and the number just kept growing because they just hadn't finished so i'm not just saying that they're that it's always overstated we've definitely run into situations where where nobody realized exactly how bad things could be and how much money it was cost to clean things up get back things back to running i mean that kind of estimate does get crazy because sometimes it's hard to differentiate between what it takes to restore service and what it takes to reset or set things up so that you aren't vulnerable to the same threat again right yeah and you do have to do both but the question is when in the legal perspective should the whoever's liable for for the damage have to pay for fixing the problem that they exploited Mm -hmm. like from our defense side obviously it doesn't matter but right you're trying to 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 assess damages it does and so our very last one the very last thing we're going to talk about was the rise in 1995 of the macro virus okay and the era in which these were important or really important was relatively short and they're kind of the internet wasn't important to them which is why we're talking about them now instead of the instead of the next episode right so in 95 or so 94 95 the microsoft office suite started getting popular and it supported a macro language
0: mm-hmm.
2: and so people relatively quickly realized that they could create a virus that replicated through Word documents that could embed itself into your Word implementation. Mm-hmm. So you, you opened a document, the macro runs, the macro installs itself into your Word. So the next op- document you open also has that macro run. Mm-hmm. Now, a lot of these were mm-hmm. relatively or the graffiti type stuff we talk about where they would replace the word the with curse words and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. But... They're a little interesting because they no longer focus on OS level stuff. they're infecting productivity software right and as simple as they tended to be, the replication worked a lot better, especially in this era because people were moving documents between each other like on on like a company network or a school network or something.
1: Mm-hmm. Like yeah, yeah
2: now, the first real internet or one of the early like internet pieces of malware that was specifically internet born was the Melissa virus, which was a macro virus, but we'll get to that later on. Right. right. kind of even without email, even without websites, you had file shares on networks. When a macro virus got in it would affect one file, next person to open it gets infected infects every file they touch and then all of a sudden you have basically the word fuck in all of your
1: documents (laughs) nice
2: (laughs) and this is like one of the first times when you could when the case as a security professional you'd make of no no we need antivirus on every single one of our systems
1: right right yeah
2: yeah, this is this is a time and a place where you could really make the case for that because a lot of the earlier stuff you could afford to or at least you it wasn't inconceivable that you could afford to handle that stuff as it came up as kind of just a response strategy
1: Um, yeah exactly
2: i remember seeing this for the very first time in around 95 or 96 in one of my earliest tech support jobs that was at a business office. Oh, really? Yeah. I mean, very quickly. I don't remember being baffled by it for very long. I rem- either somebody described it to me, or I relatively quickly figured out what it was and how it worked. Mm-hmm. And I don't remember. I, I it's one of those things where it's like, yeah, I'd like to think I figured it out, but it's totally possible somebody told me.
1: Right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
2: <laughs> but it was probably my first real experience with actual infosec practice or anything resembling it
0: Hmm.
2: and it's not really the point in time that i got interested in this stuff but it was the first real hands-on that i had with it Uh, right word macro viruses in like 1996
1: yeah yeah it's interesting how like some of the stuff will like kind of creep back like when i was doing multimedia i was a gamer but like Mm -hmm. you know i had no inclination towards infosec or like sysadmin or anything like that but to you know pirate games or to like do other things you know required like editing your host files yeah. so it's like you you just like kind of learn what dns is not knowing that you just learned what dns is um yeah and then later on you're like oh this yeah i, I know this thing
2: yeah and i figured out a lot of stuff about dos on trying to get games to run and then mm-hmm. yeah
1: know, yeah
2: i ran linux in high school And I don't know that I did uh, much with it, but man, the first time I had to touch it work, at least I had some basis of understanding. Yep, yeah. Maybe we'll finish on this one. The incident that really actually got me interested as a security professional Mm -hmm. was me and one other guy at the first place that I was like salaried tech support. We Frankenstein up this Linux box and put it on the network. And like we had a firewall, but it was only in front of our our publicly accessible application stuff right there was this whole like political fight about whether or not to put the firewall in front of the users Mm. and i might have mentioned that at one point that somebody was using that network to run their own website (laughs) and i never found out if that person was related in any way to the political fight about this but you know wouldn't be shocking if you if you could yeah The fact that that was the case meant that my little Linux box that was under my desk that me and my buddy would play around with Mm -hmm. was publicly accessible. Mm -hmm. And it was hacked with what was called a teardrop attack against the Telnet port at the time. Oh, okay. And kind of the outgrowth of that, Mm -hmm. the, the sysadmin, the senior sysadmin, Gave us a talking to, but didn't report us up the chain. Probably should have, but he didn't. (laughs) And I learned a lot of things about what he was trying to do because he was the big impetus behind getting that firewall in front of the network. We ended up talking a lot about patching. And very shortly thereafter, we started really pushing internally about using SSH, which was very new at the time. Um, Hmm. That was right around when when we were doing that, Open SSH was not generally known. I don't even know if it was generally available. And like that kind of between the time that we talked about doing it and we're trying to get the software bought for it and the time that we that everybody decided that it was a thing that we needed, <laughs> Open SSH was available and, we, and it became a a no budget project to do it instead, oh, of, nice. that, instead of something that we had to pay for. But it's like, we didn't know that there was a free solution when we started talking about it i i and i don't know the exact timeline but that was the thing that really got me in there into it was not too long after we're leaving off this story but getting a box hacked on a network that had no protections in a world before we did patching <laughs> <laughs> on a surface that nobody should ever run anymore <laughs>
0: Find out about new episodes at r slash Hacking the Gibson on Reddit and support the podcast by contributing at the Wikimedia Foundation or Electronic Frontier Foundation.